Hermione just took a DNA test. Turns out, she's 100% that witch. You're listening to The Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for geneticists. A wand was taken from you upon your arrival at the ministry today, Mrs. Tatamo. Could you please tell us from which witch or wizard you took that wand? I didn't take it from anybody. I bought it when I was 11 years old. It, it, it chose me. No, said Umbridge. No, I don't think so, Mrs. Catamo. Wands only choose witches or wizards. You are not a witch. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome back. Hello. It's still Deathly Hallows. It's so early in Deathly Hallows. In fact, we're only now getting into the interminable camping trip. Well, yeah, that's what makes this book so exciting. What? Because a lot of the rest of it is intense. <laughs> oh my god. Wow, we didn't even plan that setup. You yeah. did a really good job. I saw the alley-oop and I dunked it. There you go. Except so, it wasn't really an alley-oop because we didn't plan. So, I mean, whatever. The basketball metaphors are breaking down. Sorry. I am trampling on your intro. You're good. This is our introductory banter. This week we are reading the chapters called The Muggle-Born Registration Commission and The Thief. As usual, you know the drill. Spoilers and cursing. Lots of both. And some adult themes. This week's adult themes are kangaroo courts, busy work, memento mori, elevator chit chat, and camping. All of the camping, all of the time. (laughs) All right, Alex. Hey, what happens this week? In this week's chapters, we find Harry and Hermione deep undercover and deep inside the Ministry of Magic, where they've just come face to face with Dolores Umbridge. After getting out of the lift. There's a lot of lift drama. Elevator drama. It's elevated. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, I never make puns. That one wasn't very good. We can tell why Alex says the punning. So much of the plot, though. It's, you're right, elevator chit-chat. It revolves around just encounters and elevators. Yes, they spend about 65% of these chapters inside of lifts. Doors opening, doors closing, it's some noises off bananas. (laughs) I think I reference noises off a lot. There must be another example of that kind of like on and off stage, like, oh, the door opened and look who it is. Just farces. That's what I think. I always think about noises off. Yeah. I mean, that's like the classic one, right? I don't know. It's fucking obscure. Yeah. Okay, go on. Dolores asks Hermione, disguises Mephala Hopkirk to come with her. She needs someone to take dictation for for the court, their court proceedings, uh, or whatever proceedings these are. I guess it's court. Technically. Yeah. This leaves Harry by himself because Ron is tied up doing janitorial work on another floor with the woman's life on the line. That is fucking dicey when your life depends on Ron being able to really correctly execute any task, but <laughs> per- in particular, uh, something maintenance related. You know, not the handiest dude. Harry, as you might recall, is disguised as Albert Runcorn, who seems to be some kind of Death Eater or bad dude because everyone's scared of him. Also, he's just very tall and swole. He encounters Pious Thickness, the puppet Minister of Magic, 
Thickness asks him what he's doing on this level. Harry thinks of the first name that comes to his mind. He's like, I'm just looking to have a word with, uh, Arthur Weasley, which, I don't know, that seems like a dicey strategy, but, uh, whatever. It works out okay for Arthur, I think, in the end. Thickness makes some remarks about how blood traders are just as bad as mudbloods. So that's dark to hear from the Minister of Magic, although he's under the Imperious Curse, right? Yes. Does he act, is this him saying it? No. Is it so it's like somebody else saying it? I, I don't understand the, how the Imperious Curse The works. mechanics of being like long term under the Imperious Curse are confusing. Right. Like is somebody just pulling the strings at all times or is he sort of like on autopilot? I feel like the like, command is like be a Death Eater. Be yeah, be a dick at every possible moment. Yeah. Just, you know, so yeah, I'm wondering, did Thickness believe the stuff beforehand, and that's why it's plausible now? Seems like maybe he was sort of Death Eater sympathetic, or at least one of these pure blood supremacy types. Pious Thickness is such a Death Eater name. Yeah. That he must have started out at least sympathetic. Right, yeah, because the old wizard families have these kind of elaborate names like fucking Draco or Scorpius or whatever. It just you know. she has good guy names and bad guy names and Pious Thickness is a bad guy name. Just <laughs> straight up. Harry proceeds through the ministry under cover of the invisibility cloak and he realizes as he's walking by the many many doors that are obviously in the Ministry of Magic he realizes that he has no idea what the fuck he's doing. He thinks to himself, there are a lot of uh, offices in this massive office complex. Eventually, he comes upon a room where a bunch of ministry employees are magically folding pamphlets that Harry sees are titled Mudbloods and the Dangers They Pose to a Peaceful Pureblood Society. In case we had any doubts about uh, what policy direction the ministry is going in now, Harry sees a door that reads Dolores Umbridge, Senior Undersecretary to the Minister and Head of the Muggle-Born Registration Committee, and set inside the door, there's a but 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 motherfucking blue eyeball spying on everyone. It's Mad-Eye Moody's eye. That's fucked up. Harry sets off a decoy detonator to distract the other employees and sneaks into Umbridge's office. There's a telescopic attachment that Umbridge has been using to play I Spy on her employees. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> Umbridge's ministry office looks just like the one she had at Hogwarts. There's like all these fucking plates with I Can Has Cheeseburger gifts on them or whatever. That is such an old is reference. Is that such an old reference? Oh my heavens. That's old millennial. Okay, cat gifts. It's just all cat gifts. Yes. On these fucking plates. Harry starts rummaging through her office, looking for the locket. He tries Asio locket. Asio. <laughs> Asio. He tries Asio. All of a sudden, I cannot remember how to pronounce the Asio charm. Asio. Asio. Not Asio. No. Asio locket. He tries Asio locket. It obviously doesn't fucking work. Harry thinks, yeah, clearly she would protect this fucking thing. So he just starts opening drawers, which, you know, that's a good. It's a good starting point. Uh, he finds a file on Arthur Weasley, who we learn is under surveillance, and that there is strong likelihood that he will be contacted by someone named Undesirable Number One. Who could that possibly be? Harry thinks 
I have a pretty good fucking idea who that probably is. And then, of course, he sees a poster of himself on the wall with the words undesirable number one on his chest, so... That doesn't fit in with her decor at all. It must really clash. Well, there's a note on it with a kitten. There's like a sticky note with a kitten on it attached to the poster that says to be punished. As like a reminder? Yeah, like... (laughs) Would she forget? Yeah. She's like, don't forget. Torture Harry Potter when you find him. (laughs) Like, to-do list. I love that detail. It's she's just so like very over the top. I but also she's so like kind of bureaucratic and mundane at the same time that she's like you know gotta dot all the fucking eyes and cross the t's. Want to make sure nothing slips through the cracks. What else is on her to do list? It's just like torture. Yeah, be evil <laughs> <laughs> today. My thirty day goals. Harry also finds a copy of Rita Skeeter's new book. The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore. So, I mean, you know, at least Umbridge reads. Oh, God. <laughs> Maybe she's in a ministry book club. Oh, my God. They should have a book club of the Rita Skeeter book. That would be so funny. That's uh, kind of what we're doing. What? Well, we're doing a book club about the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore. Fair enough. Harry opens the book to a picture of a teenage Dumbledore who has a wispy beard and is laughing with a golden-haired boy who has a, quote, gleeful, wild look. Harry wonders if it's a young Elpheus Doge, but before he has time for any more recreational reading, the door opens behind him. Harry pulls on his invisibility cloak just in time. It is Pious Thickness, who is, like, just waltzed into the office to leave Umbridge a note. How did he not notice the eye was gone? Well, I think he did. Because that's how they know somebody notices the eye was gone. But he gone. doesn't immediately react. Yeah, he's not like, where the fuck is the eye? I don't know. He just know. Like, Maybe leaves the, the note on her there. desk. It's like, oh, that's weird that there's a hole in the do- door. Yeah. It is kind of weird that he just waltzes in. Well, like, he's send the a minister. She, yeah, but like, send a message. Send she a, works for send him. Send one of those paper airplanes. Sure. It's nice that wizards are free of the tyranny of email. <laughs> That's so true. It's a zero email office. They don't have Slack. Yeah. They don't have that scary, like, brush, brush, knock sound <laughs> haunting their dreams. Do you know what Slack stands for? What? Systematic log of all communications and knowledge. Sounds like something on Star Trek. I mean, yeah. Good answer. <laughs> I love a good Slack joke. So glad we glad we got that in there. Harry makes his way back to the lifts and finds Ron, who is soaking wet. He's still trying to fix the fucking rainstorm in Yaxley's office. Arthur Weasley also steps into the lift at some point. I we're just going on a lot of floors. A lot of doors are opening and closing, as we said before. He's talking with a woman whose name is Wakanda. It's actually spelled. Exactly the same as the country in Black Panther. Wakanda forever. Yeah. I, that's what Arthur says to her as she steps out of the lift. That that's doesn't not happen. true. Yeah. At one point, fucking Percy steps into the elevator. He's looking at a bunch of papers so he doesn't see Arthur's inside. Then when he realizes Arthur is there, he turns. I believe the description is radish red and he leaves the next possible stop. So... Fucking Percy is still working at the Ministry of Magic while all this is going down? What a dick. I guess Arthur is too, but... But Arthur's, like, there to, like... He's, like, part of the Resistance. Yeah. Percy is just going along with it. Percy's just doing his fucking job. Irritating, to say the least. What 
an a-hole. Percy's the worst. Somebody is playing, I think, guitar in another apartment. So if that's on this recording, sorry. It honestly sounds like the tuba to me. But really? Yeah, maybe it's a bass. It's like a boom, boom, I don't know. Boom, it's pretty low boom, notes. Boom, boom. Anyway, the mic's not pointed in that direction, but we live in New York. There's a lot of noises. We've determined that it's a bass. So somebody in this apartment's all about that bass. Again, that's so old. I can't keep up on references. I'm 34. You did make a Lizzo joke. Yeah, but like kind of a couple weeks too late. That's true. You're it's a like little not, bit behind the 100% I'm behind the that meme, bitch I'm behind, meme. Yeah, I'm behind the meme cycle. I'm always a step behind the meme cycle. Even on Harry Potter. I came, I'm a Johnny come lately. I also had to explain why that's a meme at all and make you listen to Truth Hurts. Yeah, which was great. Which now you listen I to I did not know the meme. I was just day. like, LOL, DNA tests. That's funny, I guess. It's so good. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, also, it's thematically appropriate to this chapter. Why? Because of the Mungleborn Registration Committee. Everyone's basically having to prove their oh, ancestry. Oh, I yeah, thought you there meant you go. the message of why are men great till they got to be great. I mean, that always. 100% relevant 100% of the time. But yeah. So we really think hard about the cold opens. <laughs> anyway, back to the fucking constant elevator intrigues. Arthur balls out Harry Disguises. What does balls out mean? You know, when you ball someone out? I've never heard that expression. Oh. Choose out. No, but balls out is also a phrase. It sounds like you're saying your balls are out. No, like when you ball out someone? I've never heard of that. It's like B-A-W-L. Oh, okay, right? go on. Hold on. I'm sure it's true, I've just never heard that. You've never heard the, dis- the, the, the... I've heard the words balls out, but like <laughs> in a different context. To reprimand loudly or severely. Go for it. Yeah. Well, Harry does go balls out in a different way later in this chapter. True. Very soon, actually. Story. Um, all right. Not very soon in this summary. We're learning idioms. We're talking about elevators. This is a fucking action-packed uh, recap. Anyway, Arthur chews out Harry, disguises Runcorn for giving away Dirk Cresswell as a muggle-born Runcorn tells, well, fucking whatever. Harry tells Arthur he's being tracked while not giving away the fact that he's Harry Potter. Harry then makes his way to the courts. The corridors are filled with ba-ba-ba-motherfucking dementors. It's terrible. Yeah, that fucking sucks. He finds the chamber where Umbridge is interrogating... Dementors and prisoners. Yeah, and prisoners. Yeah, there's everyone... There's, like, multiple people who are, like, in kind of, like, are they in holding cells? No, they're, like, just in a corridor. Yeah, they're just waiting to be interrogated by the commission. Like, potential muggle-borns. Mm-hmm. So Harry finds the chamber where Umbridge is interrogating muggle-borns along with the Death Eater Yaxley with Mafalda slash Hermione taking notes. It's described as, like, very small, but the ceiling is really high, so it's like a deep well. Do they, what if you're half-blood? That seems like mostly fine, but I think probably my guess would be that they develop a very complex, like, caste system is what they're going for. Like the kind of, like, one-drop rule? Mm Mm-hmm. Or, like, octoroon situation? Yeah. 
That would be my guess okay. of where this is all heading. But I don't think, I think it seems like okay, uh, or more okay. Muggleborns though, totally verboten. Yeah, that's more of like an ethnic cleansing situation. Right. Ugh. They're interrogating. Yeah. Umbridge's cat-shaped Patronus is protecting the interrogators from the despair caused by the Dementors. As when Harry walks in, it is Mary Cattermole's turn in the barrel. Remember, she's married to the guy that Ron is disguised as, Reg Cattermole. Umbridge asks which witch she stole her wand from. Mary says, I bought my wand. Umbridge says, that's not true because wands only choose witches or wizards and you are not a witch. As Umbridge leans forward, Harry and Hermione notice that she's wearing Salazar Slytherin's locket. Hermione tells Dolores that it's very pretty. Dolores says it's an old family heirloom and that the S stands for Selwyn, which is an old pureblood family. I'm related to lots of pureblood families. Harry is enraged that Umbridge is using the locket that she fucking blackmailed Mundungus Fletcher for in a back alley to bolster her pure blood credentials. He's like, fuck this noise. He stupefies Umbridge and Yaxley and all fucking hell breaks loose. Wait, we're about to get to the most exciting part of these chapters, but why wouldn't she just say it was Salazar Slytherin's locket? That's like even more badass. Do you think she knows? No. She probably, I don't think she, she might not know. That's a good question. She might not know. Does she know the meaning of the locket for real? Or does she just like it? Like, she must know it's the sign of Slytherin. It's old as hell, yeah. I don't fucking know. Okay. Maybe that's like too obvious. But Voldemort's in charge. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but if she's like hiding her, like, if she's trying to kind of bolster her pureblood credentials, she doesn't, she's like a savvy operator, right? Because that makes her like, kind of too close to Voldemort, right? And he might start asking questions because he might not believe it. Well, if Voldemort sees the locket, Voldemort knows what the fucking locket is. She's fucked either way if Voldemort sees the locket. Oh, dude, that's a good fucking point. Like, Voldemort's going to be like, hi, my soul's in there. (laughs) May I have that? Unless it was weirdly entrusted to Umbridge because she's like closer to Lovo. There's no way Lovo gives Umbridge the locket. Lovo is not... You could just kill Umbridge and take the locket. Think about how much he protected the locket. No, there's no way Voldemort knows. But them. he's like kind of got them dispersed. It's like a diverse portfolio. No. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this no. is the case. I'm just. She must not know here. what it is. Yeah. Whoa. But then why does she bribe Mundungus to? Does she? Because okay. it's old as it's obviously old as hell, and she thinks it's like tight. Maybe I don't but know. It She's, seems pretty clear in the in Mundungus's recollection that she realizes immediately that it's like an incredibly precious heirloom. She must know it belongs to Slytherin and doesn't know it's a Horcrux. But I still don't understand why she wouldn't say, oh, this is... Is there some... The Selwyns aren't the, the same as the Slytherins. No. Okay. Maybe... I don't remember if any of this gets explained, but if Voldemort finds out Umbridge has the locket, he's gonna, like, kill her and ask questions about how she got it later. Because she could also be, like, a traitor. She must not know. I don't think she understands what it is that she has. It doesn't make any sense that she'd have it if she did. Yeah, I I don't know. But also maybe the locket is why she's being so much more fucked up even than she has been in the past because it like ruins your like mood. Yeah. Okay, well, God, there's so much going on. <laughs> well, anyway, Harry has just gone fucking Leroy Jenkins and is just like blasting fucking Umbridge and Yaxley. 
Uh, I have a request. Yeah. Will you all tweet us or like DM us somewhere if you understand that reference? Because I think it's incredibly obscure. It's it's like a 14-year-old meme. From World of Warcraft. Which I don't actually play, so but I know the meme. If Leroy Jenkins was funny to you, I just need to know who you are. <laughs> it's a very funny video that you should look up if you have never seen it. And it encapsulates Harry's entire MO. It does. I've been waiting so long to use that meme. Okay. Well, now you have. I know. Harry just had his Leroy Jenkins moment. And many more to come, frankly. Harry's fucking shit up. Some epic fucking adventures ensue. Umbridge's cat Patronus winks out of existence and the Dementors close in on Mrs. Cattermole. Harry and Hermione both cast Patronus charms. They grab the locket from Umbridge and leave with Cattermole. At some point, Harry rounds up the other people who are about to, going to be questioned by the commissions and tells them that they all must flee the country. It's a new ministry policy. He leads the prisoners to the atrium where the fireplaces are, where he finds the fireplaces are being sealed because ministry officials realize that the ministry has been penetrated. Harry, as Runcorn, bullies one of the wizards, sealing the fireplaces, and tells him that he, if he doesn't let everyone leave, he'll have his family tree examined. Ron shows up at some point as Cattermole, as Reg Cattermole, Mary Cattermole, throws her arms around him, but then the real Reg Cattermole shows up, so we have like a duplicate Spider-Man meme situation here. <laughs> uh, everyone should know that meme, right? Yes. So many memes in this one. Every flavor of memes. Yaxley bursts into the atrium after recovering from his stupefaction. Harry literally punches him in the face. Instead of stunning him, which, that's fucking badass. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. The trio escape into the fireplaces, pursued by Yaxley. Once free of the ministry, Hermione apparates them away, but something goes terribly wrong. Harry sees the doorknob of Grimald's place for a split second, but then everything goes dark. He wakes up in a forest. Ron is covered in blood. He splinched. Splinching, it turns out, is pretty fucked up. Uh, it looks like the flesh on part of his arm has just been, quote, scooped away, unquote. <laughs> Fucking awful. So, yeah, man. Hermione is able to treat Juan... Juan. Hermione is able to treat Juan's... <laughs> Say Ron's wounds three times fast. Ron's wounds, Ron's wounds, Ron's wounds. Okay, fine. You can fuck... <laughs> Good for you. You can do these summaries from now on. <laughs> Hermione is able to treat Ronald Weasley's wounds with some essence of Dittany from her bag, because she has packed everything except fucking food. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, we learned that Yaxley managed to grab hold of Hermione while they were apparating away from the Ministry, and she accidentally deposited him at Grimold Place, meaning that because they were now the secret keepers for Grimold Place, the secret is now broken. So she transported them to the first place she could think of, the forest where the Quidditch World Cup was held. She wanted a place with some cover in case the Death Eaters were somehow able to track them. Harry thinks ruefully about how creatures was waiting at home for them with some delicious steak and kidney pies, which they will now never be able to eat. And he also wonders what if Creature gets tortured. So, you know. Priorities. Yeah. The Death Eaters don't show up, unlike the last time they apparated. Hermione says she's really sorry about how everything got so fucked. Harry says, it's okay, I fucked up too. And he pulls out Mad-Eye's eye and says, this is how they knew there were intruders in the Ministry 
because the eye was missing. So, Harry should have remembered an eye for an eye. Oh my Just heavens. Replace the eye with a fake eye. Should have brought a fake eye. Luckily, Hermione is prepared for this moment by packing the ba-ba-ba motherfucking tent that they used for the Quidditch World Cup. Does you that deserve a ba-ba-ba motherfucking? This tent is very fucking important for the next few chapters. That's true. It's the tent that belonged to Perkins at the Ministry, but he let we the Weasleys keep the tent because he can't go camping anymore because he has lumbago, and for some fucking reason, wizard magic can grow back all your bones. It can replace your blood. It cannot treat lumbago. Okay, I gotta hurry up if we're gonna finish the summary in one minute. Um, Hermione starts casting protective charms around their camping site. She says she can't guarantee that she can't keep out Volda. But before she can finish saying Lovo's name, Ron begs her not to use it anymore. He just says, just show he who must not be named some respect. And Harry wants to argue, but Ron has been, like, bleeding a lot. So everybody decides just to let it drop. The trio examine the locket, which seems to have a heartbeat, which is freaky as hell. They decide to take turns guarding it. At some point, they eat some wild mushrooms that Hermione has picked. You'd think if she packed, like, a tent, Essence of Dittany, there'd be some, like, MREs in there. Some fucking granola bars. Yeah, you know. While Harry is standing watch with the locket, which is super fucking cold, he starts to feel despair about his mission. He realizes, he thinks how he has no idea where the other Horcruxes are, or even how to open this one. Then his scar starts to prickle, and he finds himself sucked into Lovo's brain. Lovo is interrogating Grigorovich, who says, I don't have it, it was stolen from me. Lovo says, do not lie to Lovo. Bro. <laughs> then Harry, as Lovo, goes into Grigorovich's memory. So we've got a triple inception thing going on here. In Grigorovich's memory, Grigorovich also is described as looking like Santa Claus. That's sad. I know. Grigorovich is hurrying down the passage of his workshop, and he bursts into a room and sees a young man with golden hair sitting on a window ledge with a wild look of delight. Grigorovich tries to stun him, but the young man jumps from the window like a crow, laughing. Lovo demands to know who the thief is. Uh, Greg says he... D <laughs> Grigorovich, not Greg. <laughs> did you write Greg in your notes? I did write Greg in my notes, because just a long time... It it's a lot to type. It's a lot. Grigorovich is a lot to type. So Greg says he doesn't know. Lovo then says, fuck you, Greg. Murders Grigorovich. Harry comes to. Hermione berates him for not closing his mind to Lovo. Harry then wonders to himself what Lovo was looking for. He feels like he's seen the thief before. And he kind of feels for the thief, knowing that he's in danger because he's now wanted by Lord Voldemort. Then Harry falls asleep because it's been a bit of a day. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. You know, these chapters are pretty short, but that was a very long summary. A lot happens in not that many pages. I sweat profusely when I read these summaries. Well, because you're like Charlie Chaplin in The Great Dictator. <laughs> you're all over the place. I totally understand the profusion of sweat. Sorry, that might be too graphic for people, but... 
well, it's kind of hysterical. Inside, little inside, and little insight into uh, the making of your favorite podcast. Sweat. Blood, sweat, and tears. Actually, never blood, sometimes tears, always sweat. Yeah, always sweat. So this plan is bad. Panic pulsed in the pit of his stomach. As he passed gleaming wooden door after gleaming wooden door, each bearing a small plaque with the owner's name and occupation upon it, the might of the ministry, its complexity, its impenetrability, seemed to force itself upon him, so that the plan he had been carefully concocting with Ron and Hermione over the past four weeks seemed laughably childish. They had concentrated all their efforts on getting inside without being detected. They had not given a moment's thought to what they would do if they were forced to separate. Now Hermione was stuck in court proceedings, which would undoubtedly last hours. Ron was struggling to do magic that Harry was sure was beyond him. A woman's liberty, possibly depending on the outcome. And he, Harry, was wandering around on the top floor when he knew perfectly well that his quarry had just gone down in the lift. He stopped walking, leaned against a wall, and tried to decide what to do. They have, well, this plan is non-existent. They spent all their time figuring out how they could get into the Ministry of Magic, and it's very unclear what they thought was going to happen inside the Ministry of Magic. <laughs> Harry literally thinks this at one point. He just stops and goes, oh, fuck. What do I do now? It'd be like if you figured out how to break into the Pentagon to steal, I don't know, a fuck, some fucking jewelry from the Assistant Secretary to the Navy, and I mean, the Pentagon's fucking huge. And complicated and well-guarded. No map. Well, they didn't even get a map of this thing. Harry also thinks almost immediately, wow, Umbridge probably doesn't have the locket at work. <laughs> They're actually extremely lucky that she is bananas enough to wear this thing all the time. Yeah. Because he sort of looks at her office and he's like, oh, wow, why would it be in here? Should have thought this through earlier. Yeah. Well, Harry... This is this is 100% Harry's approach to everything because in the previous chapters they're debating about whether they need to plan this out anymore and Harry just says, "Ah, you know, if we don't do it now, we'll just never do it." So, fucking let's go for it. We're usually, not going to be Usually he, things work out, right? He says like we're never going to be more prepared and then we get inside and we're like, "Oh yeah, you definitely yeah, could have been more prepared." There are extremely specific steps we could have taken to be more prepared. That being said, it's very exciting. I mean, yeah, this is a fucking rip-roaring action scene. Deathly Hallows may be the most exciting book in well, the series. I mean, you'd hope. Well, yeah, it's the fucking finale, so... Yeah, I mean, you would hope that. But I think but I think she's been smart in her decisions so far, specifically in, you know, killing off Mad-Eye and Hedwig in the first big action sequence, the... Battle of Seven Potters, because there's a sense in every one of these set pieces going forward that anything can fucking happen at this point. She killed a fucking owl. She could do anything. <laughs> I mean, it does feel like the protagonists are pretty unlikely to die in the first third of the book. I mean... But who knows? That's true. We could lose yeah. Ron or Hermione at any moment. That's totally true. I mean, we know we don't, but... It's still, I mean, reading it for the first time, you felt the whole time like, oh, wow, she might kill any one of these characters. Except for probably Harry Potter. 
she probably you have to wait till the end if you're gonna kill off Harry Potter. That is true. But that true. was an open question when this book came out whether Harry would make it or not. I mean, he sort of almost doesn't. Yeah, he dies, kind of. Well, we will we'll get, get we there. Will get to that. I also appreciate, you know, for all of the ways in which Hermione is obviously the most well prepared for this entire book. This is really Harry's sort of action. This is I mean, this time. is really Harry's moment. Yeah, he really shines in these chapters. Ron and Hermione the- just kind of randomly wander around, like, pretending to actually work for the ministry, while Harry is like, what if we sort of did a thing? Harry, bas- Harry like, leads a fucking prisoner revolt. He does. That he just spins up out of nothing. I mean... <laughs> yeah, well, I want to... So let's talk a little bit about this these um basically prisoners i mean it's pre-trial but they are they are clearly the these muggle-borns are clearly prisoners it has that very i mean i feel like this is sort of like a cliche like quote but it has that very like first they came for the other group and i did nothing because i wasn't part of the group it's like the i mean the way the muggle-borns are being treated is really horrifying I mean, they're being tortured, and it is kind of shocking that there are all of these ministry officials, a lot of them just normal people. Right. Like, they're not all Death Eaters. Like fucking Percy. Just kind of fucking walking around knowing that there is torture going on in these courtrooms, and they're like, okay, well, I guess, like, it's definitely going to stop here, and, you know, history teaches us, like, it's definitely not going to stop here. It's interesting that Umbridge's official title is... Muggleborn registration commissioner because I guess we would say the word Muggleborn is sort of the I hate using the word PC but it's like the not offensive description of a person with Muggle parents as opposed to mudblood so when they create that office there's still even the dark ministry feels like they have to kind of well they have conce- to they have to kind of make concessions to that but then. It's escalating like incredibly quickly because right outside her office, which has the kind of politically correct title. Now, it's not like, is there a better phrase I can no, use I think than that's that? But the yeah, right one. Uh, they're printing these pamphlets that are about the dangers of mudbloods and they go there. But, you know, clearly just using the less threatening term muggle-born registration was enough to encourage people to participate because Mary Cattermole, we learn, filled out the fucking questionnaire form and sent it to the ministry. Right, that's what's really scary. And the other thing is calling it registration. Mm-hmm. Everyone which is complied. such a classic yeah. sort of like ethnic cleansing move. Like we're just figuring out who everyone is. We're not going to do anything to you. We just want to know where you are and who you are and what you're up to at all times. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously these people are going to be sent to Azkaban if they are found to be of muggle parentage and, like, I guess don't admit where they stole their magic from. Like, these people are all being hauled off to prison. But calling it, we're just registering them. We're just, we're just sort of doing our due diligence and figuring out who everybody is. It's really scary. I mean, it's really that, like, it is really the rhetoric of the beginning of, like, an an ethnic cleansing process. Yeah. It's interesting to have the Dementors kind of make a reappearance in this book because they've been, she's been, like, ratcheting up the use of them ever since we met them in book three. They're just a really useful device 
and because they're so scary. Mm-hmm. Every time they show up, it's scary in ways that I think very few other of her sort of magical creature type inventions are. Yeah. Are frightening. Like even the fairy, they're sort of familiar. Like you kind of know the zombie trope enough that that's not, it doesn't like send a chill the same way. I mean, the Dementors are just the worst. It's not even supposed to be a trial. These are supposed to just be sort of like, right? Like these aren't trials. These are, I guess, hearings, which is similar. Yeah, but it seems like these are administrative courts. So they're, right. not, they're clear it's not a jury trial. Right. It's also like not framed as like a criminal trial, but mm-hmm. they're being treated as criminals. Yeah. And I think since the first time they were introduced, the Dementors have been kind of symbolic of the rot within the wizarding world within the magical community not just the death eaters but also just everybody's kind of complicity the ministry used dementors long before death eaters took over like and dumbledore kind of grudgingly acquiesced to it in book three even though he was obviously very against it but but uh, he let them be on campus so it is it's like they've been They've sort of been moving. They've sort of been moving closer to the center of the Wizarding World from the beginning. Because yeah, they were at Hogwarts. Uh, they've always been used in like the prison system, and yeah, they were at Hogwarts. Then you know they were using them more extensively. Umbridge then, as a Ministry employee, uses Dementors against Harry Potter in Book Five. So yeah, they've just been they've been moving closer to the center of the Wizarding World. And it's sort of how I don't know these bargains you make like eventually swallow your whole society if you're not careful right well it is a very symbolic way of showing the the evil that the sort of wizarding bureaucracy has always allowed to haunt the kind of like fringes of their society and the sort of disenfranchised of their society now haunt everybody and it is it's the same thing of like well, it didn't matter that there were Dementors before because they would never get near decent people. Mm-hmm. So we didn't, you know, everybody sort of closes their eyes to the fact that they're using torture. I mean, you know, Azkaban is prison and I guess like there are arguments that incarceration should exist in a civil society. I think there are also arguments that it shouldn't. But people were like fine with the idea that Dementors guarded a prison, but it was like there was no, this is just such a good illustration of you can't stop the creep of this kind of evil from eventually touching everyone. Yeah. If you sort of let it take hold in any part of your society. Another thing sort of about Harry's character that we get to see here, this is really an exciting Harry chapter, is, and a thing that I love about him actually, but is also kind of complicating in terms of getting shit done is Harry can't just like let it be and sort of get out without freeing this whole line of prisoners. When the Patronuses glided out of the dungeon, there were cries of shock from the people waiting outside. Harry looked around. The Dementors were falling back on both sides of them, melding into the darkness, scattering before the silver creatures. It's been decided that you should all go home and go into hiding with your families. Harry told the waiting Muggleborns, who were dazzled by the light of the Patronuses and still cowering slightly. Go abroad if you can. Just get well away from the Ministry. That's the uh, new official position. Now, if you'll just follow the Patronuses, you'll be able to leave from the atrium. 
They managed to get up the stone steps without being intercepted, but as they approached the lifts, Harry started to have misgivings. If they emerged into the atrium with a silver stag, an otter soaring alongside it, and twenty or so people, half of them accused muggle-borns, he could not help feeling that they would attract unwanted attention. He had just reached this unwelcome conclusion when the lift clanged to a halt in front of them. You know, like, it would be pretty easy for him to sort of smash and grab the locket and just bounce and sort of get into one of the fireplaces as they're all being sealed and the end. But instead he has to, he goes and releases Mary Cattermole. Like, he wastes, not wastes, certainly not wastes, he loses time. Right. He goes and saves Mary Cattermole and then he rounds and then he casts Patronus to like get the Dementors out of the way of the prisoners and then he gives them instructions and then he draws so much more attention to himself in like not costume but sort of undercover by leading this prison break like right through the ministry and he just he's not capable of like witnessing injustice and sort of letting it be to kind of have the like larger plan work out. Yeah, Harry refuses to make the Dumbledore-esque moral trade-offs to accomplish his larger mission, which I guess that's laudable. He could have fucked everything up by like being so reckless here. Uh, he could have, you know, I mean, if Harry gets caught, then all the people he's trying to save are in a worse situation. But if that were the case, Harry Potter wouldn't be Harry Potter. No, I know. Like a basic tenet of his character is he he physically like, can't witness injustice without trying to do something about it. Yeah, one of the very first, I mean, yeah, that's really interesting. And that's that's been built into Harry's character from the very beginning. One of the first things we see him do in all of these books is free the snake in the zoo. Where do you come from, anyway? Harry asked. The snake jabbed its tail at a little sign next to the glass. Harry peered at it. Boa Constrictor, Brazil. Was it nice there? The Boa Constrictor jabbed its tail at the sign again, and Harry read on. This specimen was bred in the zoo. Oh, I see. So you've never been to Brazil. As the snake shook its head, a deafening shout behind Harry made both of them jump. Dudley! Mr. Dursley! Come and look at this snake! You won't believe what it's doing! Dudley came waddling towards them as fast as he could. Out of the way, you! he said, punching Harry in the ribs. Caught by surprise, Harry fell hard on the concrete floor. What came next happened so fast no one saw how it happened. One second, Piers and Dudley were leaning right up close to the glass. The next, they had leaped back with howls of horror. Harry sat up and gasped. The glass front of the boa constrictor's tank had vanished. The great snake was uncoiling itself rapidly, slithering out onto the floor. People throughout the reptile house screamed and started running for the exits. As the snake slid swiftly past him, Harry could have sworn a low, hissing voice said, Brazil, here I come. Thanks, amigo. One of Harry's first acts is an act of liberation, even though it's it's accidental, but it's almost like Rowling is saying that's just it's just part of his nature. Or when he frees Dobby, there's no strategic reason he does that. He's just like, here is somebody who I know is good 
and tried to help me in order to sort of make the world better and he deserves liberation. And you know it's complicated because obviously he's not like the house elf liberator. We've talked lots about that. But when he comes face to face with what he feels like is sort of very like immediate clear injustice he can't leave well enough alone like he will not there is no way in these chapters that Harry wouldn't try to do something about this line of people sitting out there being tortured by dementors and part of that is he's young and hot-headed but part of that is he's very very essentially a good person yeah and wants to he doesn't just want to save himself like he's the guy that like he's the captain that goes down with the ship Like, he's the guy that makes sure everybody is, like, out of a burning building before, like, he goes out. And part of it is his sort of, like, ego and his hero complex. But I really think this is, like, a fundamental aspect of his nature that I really admire. Yeah, well, I think part of it was just being raised with the Dursleys gave him that, instead of curdling him, it gave him that empathy. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Because he's, you know, he's sympathizing with the snake in that very early chapter. He's kind of, like, chatting with him. Right, and he just doesn't want to see people get hurt or abused because he understands the experience of hurt and abuse and it does something really lovely to his character rather than, yeah, making him sort of like abusive himself. Mm-hmm. And you're right, like he he sort of never learns to do the moral trade-off thing. No. And it becomes complicated as in his adulthood because he just, he he, he continues to make rash decisions even in Cursed Child. And he sort of has this, like, character trait throughout his life that he doesn't ever develop Dumbledore's kind of, like, thick skin to the, like, relatively, like, small details of, like, personal experience of oppression versus, like, the big picture of, like, ending evil regimes. He comes out of the books relatively morally unscathed, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, he doesn't make many wrenching compromises. No. He's a pretty uncompromising guy. Which is a a great thing and a sort of difficult thing about him. Yeah. So I just, I think this is a really nice demonstration of that. Let's talk about Umbridge, who, it's it's great to have her back. I mean, she's the ever-living worst. She's the scariest <laughs> character. She's scarier than Lovo, for sure, to me. But I'm really glad J.K. Rowling brings her back because she's just an incredibly well-drawn and interesting character. Yeah, it would have been a shame to just have her be in Order of the Phoenix and never make an appearance again. Yeah. I guess my question with Umbridge, and we sort of flicked at this in the summary, is, is she a Death Eater? Because I think she's scarier if she's not a Death Eater. Right. I think she is an interesting character because she's not... She doesn't seem loyal to Voldemort. She seems loyal to A, just the idea of power, and B, she does seem to be a wizard white nationalist. Right. Like she seems aligned with that particular aspect of Lord Voldemort's ideology, and she sort of hates all the things he hates, but I don't think that she belongs to any like ranks. She just wants this thing to happen and she's going to align herself with whoever will make it happen. Well, just power, really. Well, yes, but I think power, but also she really believes in the need to eradicate Muggleborns. I think that's a true passion of you hers. You think so? Absolutely. I, the way I've always read her is it's more just the rules, you know? But this isn't the, the rules. Whatever the rules are. Well, these they're, aren't the rule, the rules. they're the rules now. But she believed this before they were the rules. Yeah. She believed this under fudge. 
Like, she's somebody who has always been deeply anti-Muggle-born. Did she? Do we know that? Yeah, she, like, treated Hermione badly because she was a Muggle-born. Yes, this is absolutely her, like, deeply felt ideology. Okay. But I also, I actually don't think she's a Death Eater, and I think she's, like, more rogue than the Death Eaters. I mean, the scary thing about her is I don't think Voldemort actually has a lot of control over her actions. I think she's making these actions or she's making her decisions pretty independently. She's certainly not aligned with the, like, Voldemort aesthetic. No. Like, she doesn't have any of the sort of trappings of... She's not a follower of Voldemort. She's, like, a follower of the ideology and power. That's... that. Yeah, that's how I've always read her. And I think what's all, what I've found so frightening about her is she doesn't have a firm philosophy beyond a worship of authority and hierarchy and, you know, just the fucking rules. And I think, you know, wanting to sort wizards and muggles into, like, castes, like, plays into that because that's just a great way to impose rules and that kind of plays into her fear of, like, disorder. But think about how she treats Hagrid. Right. Yeah, that's And, like, Grop. No, you're right. Like, she is a true, like ethno-nationalist wizard supremacy believer. Yeah. She is 100%. I mean, she's a deep bigot. Yes, okay. And yeah, you're right. her central organizing principle is around the ultimate supremacy of the pure-blood wizarding and putting, race. Yeah, putting people in their place. And... But I do think that aligns well with your concept of her as addicted to and totally beholden to hierarchies and power structures it's just that this particular hierarchy yeah she believes in this particular hierarchy with all her heart and I think that is what engenders her her bigotry okay but I also just I mean I know there's like a biography of her on Pottermore which like what the fuck ever (laughs) I would love at least a glimmer in the books of what like where does this woman come from I kind of see I kind of like that She's just sort of this bureaucrat that stands in for the banality of evil, even though she's actually not that banal because she has a fucking torture pen. But, you know, she wants to do everything by the book. She's got fucking sticky notes reminding her to punish people. Yeah, one of her main tenets of this, or one of the main, like, planks of this kind of, like, platform is pamphlets. Yeah. Like, she wants to convince people of this ideology. Like, she wants to carry it out by threat and force but she also wants it to be a widely adopted belief like she wants everybody to agree with her yeah and uh you know another another thing i find scary about her is so we have this patently there's the ministry is the dark ministry has created this whole new kind of mythos around how muggle-borns steal their magic that's just patently ridiculous to any outside observer. But I think she's convinced herself that it's true. Which is so scary when politicians do that, when they make up a lie and then come to believe it. Yeah, you. Yeah, it's like you gaslight yourself. And I think, I mean, what is truth in this situation? But I think... Well, she there vi- is truth no, I know, but in I think this situation. She, I know, but I think she is very much is of the mindset that... Oh, well, we say it's true, so therefore... It has become true. It is true. It functionally is true. Right. I mean, it's like the idea that perception is reality. Yeah. Which, 
you know, you find is the case sort of like in like organizational politics. Like if people think, for example, if people believe that leadership of an organization is like inept or corrupt, it doesn't matter if they're not. Like the fact that people believe that means that that leadership has sort of functionally lost all of its authority and ability to be successful. Even if they didn't start out as inept and corrupt, the perception that they are so eliminates legitimacy in the same way it would be eliminated if the rumor were true. So yeah. like perception is reality and and Umbridge sort of convinces herself with that argument. I think this is a good example of how politicians can convince themselves that their own propaganda and or lies is true. Uh, this fucking Ukraine server of democratic, this mythic server of democratic emails that Rudy Giuliani has been like seeking in Ukraine uh, at the behest of the president where you've got Trump himself like asking the Ukrainian president like, oh man, you got to find those democratic emails. They're in Ukraine somewhere. Everyone in the national security, everyone on like the national security team like has told the president these emails don't fucking exist these emails are gonna like exonerate russia or whatever of hacking the dnc because like it happened it was all like an inside job or i frankly like i don't know go read breitbart or something if you want to understand this actually no don't go read breitbart never read breitbart but this you this conspiracy theory about the hidden server is just like everyone knows this is like outlandish and not true but a number of people at like the highest echelons of government have convinced themselves that it is and are on this wild goose chase to sort of prove something that's unprovable because it's patently false right i think that's a decent example but i think i think this is different yeah because i think umbridge already believed that there was some kind of trickery and deceit mm, yeah in the idea that wizards could come from muggle parentage. I think she sort of made up some pseudoscientific kind of evidence for that. So this is more like fucked up early 20th century race science? Yes. I think this is more like, like the your, cranium size yeah, this, Your thing. skull shape determines like your intelligence I or think whatever. This is, this is something that... Umbridge believed was true and she sort of came up with trumped up evidence that it is. And because it confirms her priors, it has just become, even though, yeah, she's told herself this lie, forgot she told herself the lie or has just decided that the lie is true, even though she was clearly instrumental in helping make it. I don't know. It just, yeah, it's fucked up, but it's terrifying. I right. do think she believes it. I don't think if you asked her, Hey, I mean, did you make this up? Yeah, she would be like, nah, this is just, it's true. This is like wizard equivalent of science. Yeah. But I mean, scientists and the people who are sort of like politicians and the powerful and the researchers or scientists or whatever who align themselves with them have been doing this forever. Yeah. They believe something to be the case and then make up evidence for that. That's what's happening here. Not, I don't think it's like a full conspiracy theory I think it's different from a conspiracy theory because I think they figured out a way to give it some sinister legitimacy right but do I believe that Umbridge has always thought that muggle-borns were inherently 
in some way usurping real magic. Yes, I think that's like a a true fundamental belief of hers. Right. And my curiosity is just like, where does that come from? I also want to know more more about like her parentage and whatever. I have a million questions about Umbridge, but suffice it to say, she's it's great to have her back. How did she get this eye? Because that's the other thing. We wonder how close her relationship with the kind of inner circle of Death Eaters is. Because how would she get this unless she wasn't super duper tapped in to Lord Voldemort's activities and actions? Like this eye was taken by very close Death Eaters. Yeah. Because that's who carried out this mission. Did she go on this raid? No way. She can't fly. I don't know. I mean, it could just be a Mundungus Fletcher situation where... Somebody picked it up and she... But I mean, I just think... I think the Death Eaters had this thing and I don't understand... It's just hard to understand her association directly with Voldemort. It's very shady. Yeah. The whole thing is fucking shady. It's... She's just using it to spy on her employees, too. Yeah, Seems it's kind like of a you could, boring reason. You could use Mad-Eye's eye in, like, a much more interesting way. Or well, just leave your fucking door open. Yeah. But I guess it's spookier. It's like creepier. A fucking eyeball and your Halloween. And then we're camping for, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. It's interesting, even the sort of escape plan... Harry's plan is always just to wing it. And Hermione, meanwhile, is like, I brought the tent just in case. So once again, like, what would they have done? Yeah, Hermione, yeah. (laughs) Harry is thinking, oh, you know, we wing it. Things usually turn out all right. Things usually turn out all right because Hermione has done all the advanced planning. Things usually turn out all right because Harry's the protagonist. Well, I mean, things, you know what I mean? Like, just the logic of being inside of a story. I know that's dumb. We're My the name main is characters. On the book. Yeah. I know, that's a very sort of like fourth wall take. But yes, things usually turn out because Hermione has planned for them to turn out. Yeah, she's done all the legwork. But at the same time, Hermione, pack some snacks. I mean, like, I pack snacks for a day at the beach. <laughs> like, you didn't pack snacks for, like, potentially we will need to immediately go on the lamb because we're almost certainly going to get caught at some point in this scheme how does Hermione know what mushrooms aren't poisonous maybe there's a spell that's just like poisonous reveal us I don't know yeah I mean that must be the answer are these magic mu- pff, magic mushrooms uh <laughs> but you know uh a different well, kind different of fucking magic plants mushrooms. that only wizards can identify uh, do they take like wilderness survival well they take herbology yeah uh, so maybe true. she knows but it that doesn't that. seem like it's about edible mushrooms no it's more of about, like, mushrooms that can eat your face or whatever. We really do have this. I mean, I know it's going to get solved soon, but I have this a lot in books, and it's sort of a silly thing to dwell on. People will get themselves in these sort of ridiculous, like, incredibly complicated, very dangerous situations, and I'm kind of like, do you guys have water, though? Like, what are the basics of survival here? I'm less worried about you being tracked by the Death Eaters and more worried about... Y'all are going to starve. Well, it seems like there's indoor plumbing in this tent. That's true. So they have, I mean, water is coming from somewhere, I guess. I mean, they're glamping, essentially. She does make tea. You'd think maybe Perkins would leave a couple of, like, dry crackers or something, like, in the pantry. Yeah, the fridge. Maybe there's something. Is Um, there a fridge? Do wizards have fridges? I don't know. Whoa. They have ovens and stoves. Do wizards have refrigerators? Hot. Yeah, that's an important question. It's a cold take. It's a cold take. It's not a hot take. Ron always is the one that gets sort of the, like, 
physical, most like body damage. He absorbs to him. a lot of punishment. Broken he does. legs, a fucking brain almost eats him. Tentacle brain. You always have these scenes where Ron is like either pale or super green and kind of moaning. <laughs> Ron gets his shit wrecked a lot. Ron is like throwing up slugs or like eats the or drinks the poison brandy or. And, and yeah, and here we are out. Neville body count in the first few books. Ron's yeah. the one who actually absorbs the most punishment. For it's this. true. He I takes, mean, Harry he takes gets, one for the team. Harry gets badly hurt a lot of the time. Hermione actually avoids the most sort of like physical punishment or consequences. She doesn't get hurt very often, mm. except she gets super, super tortured later in this book. So that sucks. But I just feel like we have so many scenes. Like we could pull out the audio from throughout the series where it's like. Ron was like a delicate shade of green. <laughs> Ron is always just like a little bit fucked up. Um, should we talk about this vision that Harry has? The sort of le- the new glimpse into Voldemort's mind? Because clearly something important is unfolding through this series of revelations, which is kind of a lazy plot device. Yeah, but... I'm not wild about it, but I can't really think of a better way to do it. To like reveal, I mean, unless you were switching perspectives, which would just sort of be distracting and, and not, too and it, too long, and not really how these books go. You yeah, know? she usually has she has like one chapter in the beginning that kind of sets the stakes. But, but I mean, it is a pretty common device or trope for authors to be like, and he then he could read the mind. Well, and we've seen it before. Yeah, that's true. Because it was the main, it was kind of the main plot driver in Order of the Phoenix. So maybe this is just kind of greatest hits but i don't yeah. know i'm not i'm not wild about it but i also i mean it's extremely convenient that harry can see key j- moments key of moments voldemort's in- journey <laughs> and then he like double inceptions because then he can see greg's memory fucking greg <laughs> greg the wand maker and so it's grindelwald that stole the wand right because that's I, who's in the yeah, photograph with I'm dumbledore a, i'm a so I'm 98% sure. Harry has a very bad memory. He just saw this picture and he's like, where have I seen this face yeah, but before? But a lot of shit happened in the interim, in like the I intervening know. moments. That's fair. That's fair. But He's had a lot on his mind. It's been a long. just looked at this. It's been a long fucking day and he hates the fucking eagles. It's interesting that Grindelwald becomes kind of sympathetic in Harry's mind. I feel like there's a lot of complicated, interesting kind of like We've historical... seen this before too with the Half-Blood Prince. That's true. Yeah. No, he... Harry and Dumbledore have in common kind of falling for people like this who they like a certain amount of anti-establishment aura. They live for drama. Well, they live for drama, but they also like Dumbledore likes a trickster. He does. So it it sort of makes sense how he and Grindelwald become friends. But Harry thinks when Harry sees Grindelwald on the window ledge, he thinks there's something about him that reminds him of Fred and George. Yeah, so... I'm curious, and I mean, I guess, do I have to fucking watch Fantastic Beasts in order to understand this? I'm curious how that sort of smart, mischievous, kind of, like, sneak thief becomes the great fascist of the wizarding world. I don't know. And I don't think I want to watch Fantastic Beasts to find out. Maybe I'll read the Wikipedia. Also, just, like, quick note, Grindelwald very clearly does not look like Johnny Depp. If anything, he looks more like Jude Law than Dumbledore does. I don't understand the casting in those movies even a tiny fucking bit. (laughs) He's supposed to be golden haired. Like I'm imagining almost like a Chris Evans. But it's like long hair. 
Chris Evans could grow his hair out. That's true. He's Wait, too... doesn't doesn't Thor have long hair? Yeah. Which one's Chris? No, Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth is too beefy to be Grindelwald. Okay, you're right. He would be sort of a little more slight. Yeah. I don't know the Chris's. Anyway, all of which it's is to of, say... There's a lot of Chris's. He clearly doesn't look like Johnny Depp. So that's dumb in a lot of different directions. Um, who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Arthur Weasley for just bawling out Ron Corn in the elevator. It's very brave. Yeah, I love it. Arthur Arthur might be one of my unsung heroes for the entire series. I think that's totally fair. He's he a great character. He fucking rules. He's really not sniveling or a coward even a tiny bit. Runcorn could fuck his shit up. Yeah. But he's just like, listen, what's his face? Crystal McWald Dirk man. Dirk Cresswell. <laughs> Dirk Cresswell is... Dirk a- Nowitzki. A wit. You have to no, stop sorry. making NBA jokes. I'm sorry. Well, the NBA season's about to start you're, up again. You're actually welcome to make NBA jokes. I just don't know if they're like how big a swath of the audience they're relevant to. But I also like people love basketball. So never mind. He's like Dirk Cresswell will wreck you when he's out of Azkaban. <laughs> he's awesome. You suck. Yeah, I love that. My unsung hero is the pamphlet folding witch who calls Dolores Umbridge a hag. I just think that even small acts of resistance are very excellent. And clearly not everybody is on board with Umbridge's reign of tyranny and hate. Also, do wizards have printers? Yeah, that's a great question. How are these? Are these getting hand-lettered? Well, nothing is done by hand in the wizarding world, but right? Wand but wand-lettered. Yeah, I, I have no idea how wizards Maybe produce... Maybe it's like a quick quotes quill situation. But they're not written in script. They do seem to be in typeface. Well, yeah. for that matter, they must have a printing press for the Daily Prophet because right. it's not handwritten either. But now they're like kind of magicking, they're magic folding all these pamphlets. It seems like it should only take one of them to do it. It's it's sort of ridiculous that there's a whole room full of people. Like, couldn't one person charm all of the pamphlets? It's all just a wizarding jobs program because it they is. have no economy. <laughs> wizarding economy. It's like totally Keynesian. It is. This week's episode is brought to you by the Decoy Detonator. They're just bombs. Harry <laughs> just sets off a fucking bomb in a, the Ministry of Magic. A very small bomb. I like when they're all hovering over. It's more like a smoke bomb. Yeah. But something explodes. I like when they're uh, all the Ministry employees are hovering over it and they're like, what the fuck is this thing? Probably came from experimental charms. Remember that poisoned duck? <laughs> Poisonous duck. A poisonous duck just got loose in the ministry at one point. Yeah. All hail poison duck. I love those. Yeah. Actually, poisonous duck is my unsung, my other unsung hero. (laughs) Whatever happened to him, I hope he's living, he or she is living their best life. Maybe it's like that goose in that game. Oh my God. Oh my God. Poisonous, untitled poisonous duck game. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, which, as always, we highly recommend the audiobooks. You should find us wherever podcasts are and rate and review us, if that's an option, at the place where you like to get your podcasts. I feel like I always sort of over-explain this. Rate, review, subscribe, do that whole thing. You can find us on social media at Quibbler Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can send us. We've gotten some lovely e-owls lately. You all have reminded us of 
what is it, Gantz? Glamp's Law of Elemental Transfiguration, something like that. So thank you for... That's going to be explained later in the book. Yes. I looked it up and I was like, do we need to do a segment on this? But we will get straight on Transfiguration soon. Anyway, so that kind of e-owl is greatly appreciated. That's quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. And sign up for the newsletter where you will learn a lot about firemen rescuing owls. That is at tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast. So yeah, that's about all we've got for you today. Next time we will be reading The Goblin's Revenge and Godric's Hollow. So we'll talk to you then. Thanks, amigos. I bet it sneaked up here from experimental charms. They're so careless. Remember that poisonous duck? Do not lie to Lord Voldemort, Greg. He knows. He always knows. Who was the thief, Greg? Said the high, cold voice. It was Umbridge's lie that brought the blood surging into Harry's brain and obliterated his sense of caution. That the locket she had taken as a bribe from a petty criminal was being used to bolster her own pure blood credentials. He raised his wand, not even troubling to keep it concealed beneath the invisibility cloak, and said, There was a flash of red light. Umbridge crumpled, and her forehead hit the edge of the balustrade. Oh my god, he just ran in. God damn it, Leroy. God damn it. Leroy, you moron. Leroy.